This is a film where one suspects there are a lot of inside jokes like that. And it reinforced my feeling that they had a lot of fun making the movie and they probably had more fun making it than I had watching it. That's the danger with inside jokes sometimes. And again, David Leach as a director, you're right. As a stuntman, he'd work with Brad Pitt. So you can imagine the fun they had in those scenes. Also, you know, he does have some directorial chops. He was a, an uncredited co-director for John Wick, which is, you know, I would say the better of the two films. So, you know, he does know how to actually direct a film, but I just think it's uh, in some ways a warning sign. It's a warning bell when you realize that the people making the film have got all these cutesy, you know, cartoonish names and characterizations, and it must have been a hoot to shoot the film, to make the film. But I think the danger there in terms of what I'll call ego is that when you're so immersed in it that way, like, you know, here's Brad Pitt with his former stuntman and they're probably having a great old time. At some point that has to convey more to the audience, I would think, in terms of, you know, scripting and just narrative logic and all that. Hello, and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about Bullet Train and The Forgiven, starting off with Bullet Train. Now, Mike, I want to mention from the outset that I saw this in Screen X. I don't know if you saw it in Screen X, but it was really super cool on Screen X because there was at least one scene where what you saw in front of you was the action going on on the screen in the train. And on either side of you, you saw scenery going by the windows as if you were in the train. So I wanted to start there because I thought the experience of watching the movie was so fun. But where do you want to start, Mike, with this movie? I have stridently negative feelings about this film. And so, Marie, I can very much appreciate what you're saying in terms of how you saw it, but I don't think I would enjoy it in any dimension. Let me go on, on to a, a rant, if I may, a soapbox speech. A lot of contemporary films, of course, have ultra violence, if I can put it that way, and violence as comedy. There's a Quentin Tarantino-esque quality to this film, Bullet Train. I, I call it a Tarantino wannabe. And this, though, is a really extreme example of that. We can get into the specifics in terms of, you know, the storyline and characters and all that. But in general, I say this, it's just one gruesome killing after another. And if I use the word cleverness, it's, it's advisedly and italicized, but the cleverness there would be, well, okay, one person gets it with a sword, somebody else gets poisoned, and a bizarre kind of poison where you bleed from your eyes. So, you know, it's just really grotesque even. Somebody's, you know, a bomb victim, you have guns and knives and you name it. It's like, you know, a menu of, of violent ways to go. And, so, and as we get into the story, so much of it is, you know, one bad guy offing another bad guy, if you will. And in some films, including Tarantino's, there's some sense of purpose or at least of you know, genuine wit or, or something to make it more than just violence. Here, I've got to say, I really felt like it was just violence as comedy just for its own sake, a kind of cavalcade of extreme death. And I was really bothered by that. And I do watch a lot of violent movies, so I don't want to sound like I'm being prudish, but I really felt like I had these really strong ethical reservations about it. Like, oh, you know, you get to the umpteenth killing, it's like, well, okay, I'm supposed to laugh at this now? Or, you know, let me ask you about that, because I think it's one of the most provocative aspects of the film, namely the film has no soul, if I can put it that way. The film is all on the surface and it's all really gory and really awful stuff. And we're meant to chuckle at it. I mean, what do you think, Marie? Well, I have to say that it's based on a book 
called Maria Beetle by Kotaro Isaka. And I'm thinking about the manga that they have in Japan, where you get these really thick books and they would have obviously stories and whatnot, but you know, they'd also have news. They'd also have just incredibly violent scenes in them. And you're thinking, this is for children, but it's a cultural thing, I guess, partly. I did read part of the book and I got the feel for it in terms of it having the same sort of feeling as watching the movie. But a book is very different because all the violence is playing out in your head. Where watching the movie, I can see why they were trying to follow the book and try to play it off for laughs. I love the way you say that, the violence of comedy. But I think it works if you think of it as a commentary on what a violent culture we have anyway, the popularity of video games, the popularity of Quentin Tarantino movies. I think all of that kind of means I think it was trying to be wittier than it must have come across to you, Mike. Well, see, I hesitate to even use the word commentary because that would give the film a little more intellectual substance than I think it has. I think they do know their sources. I mean, in terms of Japanese anime, manga, yes, I mean, that's sourced there. And the fact that it can be a comment on our contemporary society. But that's, for me, a kind of highfalutin way of excusing what is almost inexcusable at times. It just seems like it, it goes for extreme violence. You know, it's a sort of movie where if somebody is going to bleed. It's like a fire hose is turned on, you know? And admittedly, I've sometimes seen movies where I would laugh at stuff like that here. Maybe here it was just a matter of in the aggregate. There's just so much of it. It was so relentless. And that would be a good pivoting point to talk about, well, why is it this cavalcade? The storyline is actually, to the extent there is one, rather spare in the sense that you have a number of cloak and dagger type characters on a train. Now, maybe an unintended irony is this is a bullet train, as the title tells us, not a subtle film. It's a bullet train. It's going from Tokyo to Kyoto. It's supposedly going really fast and getting there quickly. It takes a long time on this particular trip for whatever reason. There are a lot of stops and just seems like, gee, how many hours are they on this train to get between these two cities? But in any event, What everyone's after, to me, amounts to what Hitchcock would have called a MacGuffin, what the spies are after, but the audience doesn't care. In this case, we do know specifically what it is. You know, guess what? It's a suitcase full of ransom money. It's always what I like to call in in, in thriller movies the, the suitcase shot. Somebody opens up the suitcase and then in the audience we go, whoa, those are a lot of bills, you know, and so it has those moments. Now, within the film, you're going to have all these shenanigans and all this deadly violence, you know, as people compete or buy to get it. And the principal character we're meant to care about is called Ladybug. And the characters all have cutesy names, played by Brad Pitt. And Brad Pitt gets just about the only interesting performance in a sustained way in the film. Some of the others are are very kind of terse just because the lives are. But that's what I'm talking about in terms of a storyline. But it's not really very fully developed in terms of characters. And also even in terms of that narrative, you would think a train is racing from one city to the other and stuff happens fast. Yes and no. As I said, it seems like a long train ride for a relatively short distance. And one of the things that breaks up the momentum to the extent that there is, is that the film is chock full of flashbacks, taking you back, you know, each character, like, you know, something earlier in life. Honestly, they don't really illuminate the biographies to any great degree. What happens is they chop up the narrative. They kind of slow it down and break it up. And it becomes sort of, I don't want to say edited in a blender necessarily, but it seems just sort of choppy and and tossed together at times. And so it doesn't really hold together very well that way. Here's a contrast of where a film like this, and and I'm using this very loosely, uh, can work just by way of the basic conceit. 
the action all takes place on this train, you know, except for some of the flashback stuff, mostly on the train. Think about a film like, or, or the original story, Murder on the Orient Express. The characterizations are much more three-dimensional in treatments of Murder on the Orient Express. We care more about them. The, the wit is more genuinely witty as characters converse. Or think about a Hitchcock film like Lady Vanishes, where you have you know, principal action taking place on a train. Hitchcock loved train movies. I don't want to get sidetracked with that, but the fact that you have like really fully embodied characters and they're clever and yes, there'll be violence, but it's within a narrative with some substance and characters we care about, not just characters. And when you mentioned some of the Japanese sources, you know, yes, but in an almost literally cartoonish way. And so seeing that play out on the screen, I don't care much about these people. And here for me is one of the ultimate ironies. Although this is, as Marie said, very much drawn on Japanese sources and we can make cultural connections, watching the film itself, there's very little of Japan in it. Most of the characters on the train who have names or anything resembling identities are Americans, Brits, you know, whatever, international assortment. There isn't all that much really by way of what I call Japanese characterization. You do get some anime or, or manga type jokes by way of costuming and this and that. You do have some Japanese people in the film but when you start talking about principal characters, for the most part, no, or, or, or very little of that. What would you make of that? Because it's kind of a, a bizarre irony that, yeah, it's set in Japan and has Japanese sources, but how much Japanese culture, frankly, is in it? Well, you make a good point. I did want to mention that in the 70s, when I lived in Japan for three years, we did take the bullet train at one point, and we went to Sapporo for the Snow and Ice Festival, which is really cool. And of course, they were making a big deal about bullet train being you know, so fast. So it was this wonderful technological marvel. So I sort of enjoyed that aspect of, oh, look, I'm back on the train. And like I said, the screen acts really made it feel very realistic. And the two things that I thought were nods to old memories that I found very amusing. One was the woman trying to sell the snacks, you know, that is such a feature of the train. It's so realistic. And then the giant plush anime character, for lack of a better way to describe it, that was the most Japanese thing ever on a train. So you kind of take it in, it's funny. And then, you know, there's a twist with it later that I thought just sort of, because the whole movie is just so insane in terms of the level of violence and the kinds of things that just simply wouldn't be possible, like throwing yourself on the front of the train and then climbing your way in it. I mean, we see how many times have we seen that scene, like, but given that the bullet train is supposed to be so fast, you know, it, it strains credulity. It strains in all sorts of ways. <laughs> credulity <laughs> is the least of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and actually, even though I didn't like the film, I've got to acknowledge that the film's director, David Leach, has a background as a stuntman. And some of the individual sequences actually are well choreographed. Even if I'm not liking the scene, I've got to admit that some of it is like really well choreographed just at that level. So it's the sort of thing where as you watch it, you may find yourself preferring just to watch portions of it. You know what I mean? Like an excerpt or a clip or something just to see how, how neat some of that can be. What it's in service of, I don't think it's in service of much, but on a technical level. And Marie's right in terms of some of the cultural reference points you make, but Marie, let me just throw this back to you because I'm being stubborn on the point. Namely that wouldn't you assume or at least want in a film like this. It's a very American film, I realize, but because it is so obviously riffing or trying to riff on Japanese culture, to have at least one or two more characters in it who are clearly Japanese, in other words, like major characters, and to have it brought, because most of the things you mentioned, they're all true aspects of, of that culture, specifically on the train, 
but they're almost what I call incidental pleasures, you know, like, like as you, because it's reminding you of when you had been on the train, but, and so those are all valid and, 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 you know, very, very nostalgic in that sense, but watching the film, a lot of that just seemed to me like either background or something that's just briefly foregrounded. It's not the same as like, you know, the Brad Pitt character, and he's, he's really amusing in the film, I admit, but what I wanted was a little more foregrounding for things, specifically human beings who are Japanese. Well, you're right that it's a it's a missed opportunity. But in terms of the book, I mean, it's pretty much described the way you see it. And I also want to mention that I thought Brad Pitt was hilarious in this. His character is not named Ladybug in the book, but they do talk about throughout the story about his bad luck, where in the movie, they just kind of started off with that theme and then just kind of forgot about it as the movie went on. The two characters, Tangerine and Lemon, are much better fleshed out in the book. I did think it was sort of a fun irony, Mike, tell me what you think, that the one guy is completely obsessed with Thomas the Tank Engine, which has, I mean, could anything be less like a bullet train than Thomas the Tank Engine, who's personified and he's sweet and he gives, you know, lessons to little kids and it's just the opposite of a bullet train. So these two characters are British assassins. Of course, Brad Pitt is the, the hired gun or hired assassin who's very much an American, but these two characters, Marie mentions, they're referred to as the twins. And there's, of course, you know, very little physical resemblance there. And they're like a like an old-fashioned vaudeville team, right? Or, or musical, since it's the British tradition. They play off each other. They riff off each other. So, so one is known as Lemon, the other is Tangerine. Lemon is the one who, as Marie says, I actually was sort of amused by that, to have Thomas the Tank Engine as your cultural icon. And you're right, it's so at odds with, you know, a bullet train sensibility. It's a very different kind of train, if you will. But even though I was sort of amused by that, it wasn't really heading anywhere. It just seemed to me that it was like, it was like a kind of funny premise to have these two characters and have them bounce things off. And then it just became what I call redundant. A contrast that's been made there is, uh, think of, there are two characters on a train in Hitchcock's Lady Vanishes, and their conversations really are amusing and clever, and they go back and forth, and you care about them as, as people. In this film, Lemon and Tangerine, yeah, I, I smiled and laughed, and I realized the, the comic book origins for, for stuff like this, but it was so superficial, right? It was so on the surface with it that it, it's almost like, again, and the earlier expression I used about a, a Tarantino wannabe. This is an example of a scene that probably thinks it's funnier than it actually is, or, or related scenes. You know what I'm getting at? Like, I might smile a bit, but they probably were cackling with laughter right, right outside of the frame as they shot a scene like that. I just don't think the film is as, um, as smartly written, as clever and all that, as it takes itself to be. And that's one reason why it makes for a much longer train ride than it probably should be. The film does not have an excessive running time, but it does feel like it goes on for quite a bit. You know, I do want to mention now that you said that, that it does seem like maybe this is just an in-joke between Brad Pitt and the director, David Leach, because David Leach has not just been a stunt man, he's been Brad Pitt's stunt double in many movies such as Fight Club, Ocean's Eleven, Troy, and Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And Brad Pitt does 95% of his own stunts in this film. So I can almost see this being a conversation between these two guys. Yeah, you get out in front of the camera. You do it. You try you know what? it. You make a good point. This is a film where one suspects there are a lot of inside jokes like that. And it reinforced my feeling that they had a lot of fun making the movie and they probably had more fun making it than I had watching it. That's the danger with inside jokes sometimes. And again, David Leach as a director, you're right. As a stuntman, he'd work with Brad Pitt. So you can imagine the fun they had in those scenes. Also, 
you know, he does have some directorial chops. He was a, an uncredited co-director for John Wick, which is, you know, I would say the better of the two films. So, you know, he does know how to actually direct a film. But I just think it's uh, in some ways a warning sign. It's a warning bell when you realize that the people making the film have got all these cutesy, you know, cartoonish names and characterizations. And it must have been a hoot to shoot the film, to make the film. But I think the danger there in terms of what I'll call ego is that when you're so immersed in it that way, like, you know, here's Brad Pitt with his former stuntman and they're probably having a great old time. At some point that has to convey more to the audience, I would think, in terms of, you know, scripting and just narrative logic and all that. And I don't think it quite does here. And so when some of the other characters pop up, there are some well-known actors popping up, Michael Shannon's, as he beats. I mean, they're, they're actors you're going to recognize, but some of those just seem like, I almost want to say like cartoon cameos where characters pop up like that. And if you're totally with it, it can be fun just at that level. But if you're hoping for anything, and I'm not looking for profundity here, but if you're looking for anything a little deeper or more satisfying on a narrative level, it just seems kind of random, seems kind of arbitrary after a while, to the point where I really didn't care much about the, the money in the suitcase, which again, nature of the MacGuffin, but I, I wasn't even all caring that much about the, the forces vying for it. Sometimes it's actually a little hard even to do the arithmetic. Did you ever have that watching it, Marie? There were so many of these like bad characters throughout the train that you have to sometimes wonder like, well, how does this one relate to that one? And so I could make some of the connections, but do you feel sometimes that they're just sort of tossed together and it's not like, like the, the narrative threads aren't all fully threaded? Yes, I think it was clumsily done, but I think it's more of that, you know, video game sort of outlook where there's got to be another bad guy behind the next door. So I just sort of let it roll over me as just that kind of narrative style. I really enjoyed some of the cameos. I thought they made wonderful, you know, white space in between all of the, you know, insanity. Loved Channing Tatum's bit. Loved that we saw Sandra Bullock at the end. Again, think Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum and Brad Pitt, after making The Lost City, must have said to themselves, hey, next project we're doing, uh, you know, we're all in. So I enjoyed those um, cameos. Also wanted to ask you, Mike, what you thought of Sandra Bullock, because she apparently replaced Lady Gaga. Can you see Gaga in this movie? Well, yes, I can in the sense that the characters themselves, Brad Pitt's character, this hired assassin, he works for what's now the Sandra Bullock character. She is mostly off screen. And that's oftentimes the nature of a film like this. You know, you're a hired gun, basically. You're taking your orders, and you, whether it's the phone call or whatever, it's that unseen or almost unseen or figure. And so the fact that she's mostly off screen, I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but any number of actors could have filled that role, right? Because, you know, it's just going to be a, the occasional voice, you know, telling you to do this or, or, or do that. So in that sense, assuming they handled it the same way, Lady Gaga mostly would have been an off-screen voice. And both of them have distinctive voices. So maybe that's the attribute, Marie, is that, you know, if you have an interesting voice that way, whether you really know the actor or not, you know, the, the voice is all, all you need there. And I wondered about that because this is a, a dicey thing to say, but I think on the one hand, it's really wise to keep it confined to the train itself, you know, the action mostly there. But then on the other hand, you think of, well, you are going to have flashbacks as they do taking you outside or before all this. To what extent would you want to see an off-screen character more on screen? Even though I don't like the film, I think push come to shove, for the most part, it was a, a smart move to keep most of the action, uh, frankly, kind of claustrophobic, you know, going from train car to train car, not much off. And that actually sometimes worked quite well, like they would get to another station stop 
just for a minute or so. And just to be able to at least look out the door and see, oh, there's a platform, there's life in the outside world. But then like a minute later, you're back on the train. It was almost like a breathing. You remember, Marie, wasn't it almost like, like a, you know, a, a relaxing moment, catching your breath or something and then back, but also tension too, because you're never quite sure who might be on the platform. There's no shortage of bad characters in this world. And it's most of them on the train, but sometimes you'll have towards the end of the film, particularly, you, know, you might have somebody on the platform who's bad news too. Yeah, you're right. You've got to watch out for who's waiting for you on the platform as well. You know, speaking of people with distinctive voices, they could have gone with a full circle of Japanese references and had Scarlett Johansson be the voice and brought in a little bit of Lost in Translation with that casting. But we want to move on to Forgiven. And this is a movie that I was able to actually stream through Amazon Prime. Anybody wants to watch this, but I would tell you not to. I really did not like this movie. And since we've just finished talking about Brad Pitt in Bullet Train, I want to say I think it's because it reminds me of a better movie that I was kind of similar called Babel from 2006 with Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett. Mike, how did you like The Forgiven? Not particularly, but it, it held my interest for the sake of people who haven't seen the film, our audience in, in many cases. I can tell you this much safely because I'm always careful when I'm trying to spoil things. But what happens so early in this film is so striking that, that, you know, it's the first few minutes. And so it's not really spoiling much. But Push Come to Shove, this is a film really about race and class, because you have some really rich and privileged characters who are vacationing, essentially, in Morocco. So basically, these privileged white people who've got people of color working as servants, drivers, whatever. And where it has a really dramatic point or a real oomph moment is that very early in the film, the characters played by Ray Fiennes and Jessica Chastain, they're a very unhappily married couple. When they argue, whether at the wheel of the car or wherever, it, this is nasty stuff with, within the marriage. Anyway, where I'm not really spoiling anything is as, as they're driving along at night, they strike and kill a young Moroccan man. Now, this is what, what I initially found quite intriguing. What do you do in a case like this? Because they are, I don't want to say they're immoral, but they have a sense of entitlement. And we could even say amorality in the sense that they're just going to, you know, how can we get through this and so on, pragmatically approaching it, right? A kind of Machiavellian thing. And this is where I, I was intrigued by the film. And then within these opening moments, and I won't spoil much more than I have perhaps in terms of what's happening, but uh, they decide that, oh, you know, we've hit this guy. They put the body in the car and they decide to take it with them and they're going to a, a big party and they're going to arrive late for that obvious reason. But the fact that if they really were so amoral, so indifferent, so crass, or even just so cowardly, wouldn't they have just simply like, you know, hit and run kind of thing like leave, you know, the body by the road, just get going, get out of there. It's the middle of the night, the middle of nowhere. Nobody knows what you did, right? So in that Machiavellian sense, just get out of there and put it behind you and don't mention it to anybody. Why they would actually take the body with them, the film will try to explain that in a sense. Here's a problem, though, that, that pops up pretty quickly. The character of David, the Ray Fiennes character, is the more fully developed of the two within the marriage. And, and, and he gives a really good performance in this. It's a really well-calibrated performance. You can imagine the pangs of conscience or near conscience that, that this guy will, will have. And a lot flows out from there. And there are some decisions he makes later in the film that I think are really problematic in terms of what this character would be likely to do. But in any event, these are the givens, if you will, in the film. And that's where the film started to lose me in the sense of plausibility 
And certainly I was lost at that point by way of sympathetic identification. And this may be why Marie didn't like it. And I don't want to read too much into what you said a moment ago, but I would share the feeling that not that you have to like every character, including principal characters in a film, but this husband and wife are pretty difficult to like oftentimes. And when they go to the parties, some of the other people there are really, I mean, you know, rich and famous and, and you know, entitled and just really snooty and, you know, what, what's to like in, in any of that bunch. And the presentation of that society, it's, it's like a cloister. It's a, it's a compound of wealthy people with, you know, white people with people of color there as the servants. But in terms of the race and class issue there, sometimes it really is a bit of, I don't want to say of a stretch, but simply of underscoring in really heavy handed ways. For instance, the couple hosting the party as a gay couple, and you know it's there presented very bluntly. It's it's actually you know you know sort of like in your face imagery uh, by way of you know bedroom scenes and so on. And the objection I have is not to that whatsoever. The objection I have is the way the film presents that. In other words, it's presented as like examples of decadence. And I, I wouldn't say that it's an anti-gay film, but I think there's a vibe running through it in a lot of those scenes. And I'm wondering well, what exactly you're communicating here. Like, I can agree that this is a decadent society, but in terms of what's making it decadent, is it an issue of sexuality there? And I mean, I don't want to overemphasize that because it's just one example of various strands of the story that I had questions about or just felt kind of uneasy, like, like that this isn't quite working by way of uh, a narrative strategy. And through all that, Marie, just simply the fact that emotionally, I didn't like these people uh, enough to really feel for them. Was that sort of what you were getting at before? exactly what I was getting at. They're just such unlikable characters. And you touched on something that's actually crucial to the plot, which is the depictions of the decadence. It's not just the gay couple. There's, you know, the Jessica Chastain character is, you know, there's all these scenes of her committing adultery. The intro scene, the reason that her husband ends up striking the young man is because he's driving drunk. Now, this movie is based on a novel, I think by the same name, and the novel is beautifully written and much more obviously cerebral because it's all, you know, you're reading it and imagining it in your head. But it seems to rest more on the idea that from the get-go, she's trying to tell her husband that he shouldn't be drinking and driving, and then he does, and then the terrible thing happens. So it becomes a an unraveling of something that's planted very early on skillfully in the book that I don't think was skillfully planted in the movie. Although I will say the movie did have amazing cinematography didn't you think so at least for that Mike it's really well shot visually it, it's worth watching for that scenery and the second thing that I did appreciate was Ray Fiennes even though I don't like the character I like the performance it's a really subtle really nuanced performance anything to be gleaned here anything you know in terms of do you think the cinematography has a chance for an award is there any praise we can we can give this movie you know, the film came and went pretty quickly in terms of theatrical play. I don't think it's a film that's going to really have awards recognition, but people will acknowledge you've got, you know, some major actors and certainly, you know, there are aspects of it, as we've been discussing, that are certainly worth watching and thinking about. It's just, I find it a difficult film to recommend. Let's put it that way. So if somebody's giving out awards, I don't think I would recommend this one. So I streamed this and watched it in the comfort of my own home. But Mike, when you saw it, what was the audience reaction? It's hard to gauge that. I wasn't interviewing people afterwards and it just people people watched it and then they left, you know. So hopefully they they drove safely and, and without drinking on their on their way home. But it's sometimes difficult to glean that exactly. But there was no great enthusiasm that I could 
ferret out. And the film commercially didn't do all that much. So I think it just sort of came and went. Well, this is a pass for me, although I would say uh, definitely go see Bullet Train, but go see it in that Screen X for maximum effect. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to check out our other episodes at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Pandora and Spotify. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.